blessing to be with you this morning to continue our study of God's Word. So let me remind you of a couple of things before I jump into the sermon. Uh, this book I announced last week that we're going to be doing a lot of the young families, hopefully we'll be doing this together. It's called Imaginative Prayer by Jared Patrick Boyd. Uh, like I said, especially for, for the young families to do with kids, but anyone can do it, and we want to encourage everybody to do it because it's not just helping us to develop spiritual formation, spiritually formative habits, but it's also helping us to be grounded in important truths of our faith. So if you uh, have a chance to pick that book up, do so, and we're going to be coming up with kind of a tentative outline that we'll hand out at our next family discipleship meeting. We can give it to you if you're not there outside of that setting, but uh, where we'll be working through some of these teachings, uh, hopefully all these teachings, over the course of a year or so. So uh, just, that's just a reminder. One more thing I need to announce. Last week, I believe, I announced that our fall seminar is going to be November, the, the, the first weekend of November, 3rd to the 5th, something like that. I was just joking about that. Uh, that has been amended, and now the fall seminar will be November the two weeks after that, whatever it is, 15th, is it 15th to 17th, uh, something right in there. So just, just make a note of that. I hope everyone can be involved. Those are important times we try to spend together deepening in the faith so that we can grow as disciples of Christ. Let me open us in prayer. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for what you do for us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. Thank you for your people that you draw us together into the body of Christ. You give us resources to to come to know you better. And right now, Lord, would you meet us here in your word and uh, teach us to love you as we read. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by sharing with you a song that has been meaningful to me over the years. I've shared this song with my family. Uh, it's an old song. I don't know. You may not like it because of its tune or something, but I hope you like the words. It's called Draw Me Nearer. You know that song? The chorus says, nearer, uh, Draw me nearer, 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 uh, blessed Lord, to your precious bleeding side. And a year or two ago, I guess I had been singing this song with my family, and it just so happened one day that Eden did something, and, and she hurt her side. She said, oh, my side, and Avery was in there, and she sang, precious bleeding side. <laughs> That's a misapplication of the song, but uh, it's a, it is a beautiful and, and uh, helpful song if we think about walking with the Lord. It begins with, I am thine, O Lord, I have heard thy voice, and it told thy love to me. And that's where we start. We hear the voice of God telling us of his love. But I long to rise in the arms of faith and be closer drawn to thee. And that's where we keep going. But then the next verse says, consecrate me now. Sometimes we skip verses in the middle and we miss good stuff. Consecrate me now to your service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope and my will be lost in thine. Those are beautiful words. That's a beautiful idea. We're asking God to consecrate us, to set us apart by his grace. And as we do so, we look up to God with a steadfast hope, a confidence, a knowledge 
about our future being bright in the presence of God. And in that world, we seek for our will to just be merged with God's will. Consecration. That's what I'm after. That's what I want for my life. I want to be consecrated to God. And I have by no means arrived, but that's the journey I'm on towards full consecration to God. I want to tell you today that when we talk about Leviticus, when we talk about some of these strange rules for, for priests or whatever what seems strange to us, we're talking about consecration. I'll show you that as we go. Let me just first say a few words about the structure of Leviticus to help us out. Uh, can you put the slide up there for me, guys? This comes from a book. It's adapted by, uh, from someone else in a book by Michael Morales on the, the- Theology of Leviticus. And uh, I'm sorry, that may just be too small for you to read because it's small for me to read. But uh, there's a case to be made that the Day of Atonement is at the center, not just of Leviticus, it's the literary center of Leviticus, but it's the literary center of the entire Old Testament. Or, I'm sorry, of the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. So you you have Genesis and Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy on both sides. Well, if you you follow up uh, the the pyramid there, if you scale the pyramid, you have uh, the Day of Atonement, chapter 16, is the, the center, the hinge to turn in Leviticus. That, that is the, the wonderful teaching we have about, about the atoning sacrifice. Brother Terry's going to cover that for us in a couple of weeks. And you can see the different categories there as it's laid out in this particular diagram. And, and uh, this, this lays it out in parallel. So you have like a structure going, going up one side and down the other. They're parallel. So chapters 1 through 7, sanctuary laws. Last week Josh dealt with sac- sacrifices there. Priestly laws, chapter 8 through 10. Personal laws, chapters 11 through 15, and then the Day of Atonement, and then on down the other side. Uh, this this kind of just helps us to orient ourselves towards the book, moving towards the Day of Atonement, and then coming, coming out of it. Here's, a, here's another way to look at the, the outline. Well, if you can go back to my PowerPoint. There we go. So, this is from... Uh, how to Read the Bible Book by Book by uh, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. The first 16 chapters are what's called the Levitical Code, where you get basically these regulations for the tabernacle, sacrifice and priest and purity. And then chapters 17 through 25 are what's called the Holiness Code, where you're still dealing with uh, some overlap, but you're, you're having a, a, a focus now on communal relationships. Relationships with God, of course, there's that overlaps with both of them, but it's a relationship with others that are being highlighted more in these chapters, and we'll be getting into all of this as we go. And then you conclude with some, some chapters uh, that are about blessing and cursing, and uh, we get to talk about tithing in chapter 27. This is where we're going over the next few months, and working not just through these in, in large chunks of breaking, breaking down, although it is, we are taking larger chunks of Leviticus than we do with a lot of books, and dealing with portions at a time. We're dealing today with chapters 8 through 10. Last week was chapters 1 through 7. So if you want to open up your Bible or your Leviticus book, if you have that, we're going to begin in chapter 8. Let me just ask you as we start, do you have an understanding of something being sacred? Have you ever, in, in your world, thought of, of sacred space? 
We just sang a minute ago about holy ground. Did you catch that line? In, in the last song we were singing, talking about this being holy ground. Do we think of that? Do we really think of space? I'm afraid that in our world where secularism has been squeezing out the idea of God's presence for a long time, even in the church, we don't think of space ever being holy or sacred. We don't think of objects ever being holy or sacred. And I'm afraid that as our mindset has been adjusted from, from, by secularism, we've lost touch with the biblical worldview. We've lost touch with the, a God who is present and active and can do things even to stuff <laughs> and with stuff. I was reading in 2 Kings just last week, and the prophet Elisha dies. They put him in a cave or something, and later somebody else dies, and they throw his body in there with Elisha. He touches Elisha's bones, and he comes back to life. <laughs> Whoa! What happened? Well, that's the world of the Bible. And I'll, I'll tell you something else. That's the real world. God can touch things. God can light things on fire. God can give power to things. And I think if we're going to understand the world that Leviticus is living in, if we're going to appreciate the text that is put before us, we've got to understand something about sacred space. But here, here's what happened. We're picking up after Exodus, right? And we finished Exodus last year. About a third, I believe, of the whole book of Exodus is devoted to the tabernacle. Why is that? Because, you see, God's, this is, this is the story of redemption. God's not just interested in delivering. He's interested in dwelling. And, and, and the whole point of the narrative is God doesn't just say, hey, I'll save you. He says, I want to come and be with you. And so he gives them the tabernacle, and he spends a lot of time telling them exactly how to do what they need to do with this tabernacle. And Exodus ends with the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle, so much so that even Moses could not go inside the tabernacle. This is a sacred space. This is a space that has now been touched by God. And what we're trying to deal with in Leviticus is people learning how to live in a world where God is touching things. God didn't say, hey, I'll deliver you from distance. God said, I want to come down and I want to live right there with you. What do you do if this God is great and majestic and powerful beyond our comprehension? I read an illustration recently about this that said it would be like a nuclear power plant. Today we have nuclear power plants that can be a great blessing in producing energy that can also be very destructive. So if you're going to have a nuclear power plant around, you've got to have people who are specially trained, who know what they're doing with that stuff. They've got to know how to put on the right clothing, pull the right levers, push the right buttons, move the right materials at the right time because it is so powerful it's something beyond us, something above us. It's, it's something that could destroy us. Right? In a sense, this is what you're dealing with when you come to the tabernacle. God says, I want to do something that's going to blow your minds. I didn't just deliver you and I didn't just give you the law. Those two major moves in the Exodus. But there's a third major move in the book of Exodus. I am giving you myself to be with you. And you've got to learn how to live with that happening.
that's where you get priests. Because there's some people who especially need to know how to deal with that presence to help the others deal with it. It's all because God has come close. Let's read just the beginning of chapter 8. We're going to be very selective in what we read in these three chapters. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull, oil and the bull of the sin offering and the two rams and the basket of unleavened bread and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So he has this, this sin offering. Remember last week Josh talked to us about five basic categories of sacrifice. Here we have uh, three of them, I think. At least two and one with a twist. We have the sin offering, the bull with the sin offering. And then you have one ram that's offered as a, <coughs> I believe it's offered here as a burnt offering. And then you have another ram that's offered. And, and I don't believe the text calls it this, but it's like a, it's like a, a peace offering. Or a fellowship offering. Only something different happens with it, as we'll see in just a second. Since God is coming close, what we see in this chapter is that everything has to be purified. Everything has to be set apart. Everything has to be set apart as holy to the Lord. You remember in the, in the text of Exodus, I believe we, we talked about the priestly garments there. And, and this is the first thing you get in chapter 8 here is you get the clothes that Aaron is supposed to wear. And we're not going to go through all those again, but I want to highlight one piece of clothing. There's only one piece of clothing that the priest is to wear that is made of gold. Do you know what it was? It's a headband. And it was made of gold. And you know what? you remember what it says on the headband? Holy to the Lord. This was the priest. He was set apart for the Lord, and he was, he, it was the point of the whole tabernacle. Everything here is God's. Everything here is sacred. It is set apart to God. And this one man who represents all that is sacred more than anything else, this one man who stands in the presence of God in the way no one else does, he is to put on his head in flashing, in, in bright, brilliant metal, holy to the Lord. That's who I am. That's who we are as a people. And then Aaron's offering, uh, well, he uses anointing oil, if you, if you look at in verse 10, to anoint things and consecrating things. Offers the sin offering, offers the burnt offering. Let's just go down to verse 22, where this is the other ram that's offered. It's called a ram of ordination. Like I said, it looks like a peace offering, but, but with some twist to it. And particularly, the most striking twist that's given is the blood. The blood, in this case, is taken and it's applied to Aaron's sons. Let's just read from here for a second. It's the ram of ordination in verse 22. They lay their hands on its head, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand. And on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons. And Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Now, what is the point of this? Well, that's just empty ritual. People just doing stuff because they want to do something religious. Is that, what, is that what's happening? 
I think we should give the benefit of the doubt to our Bible here, to the practices of the people of Israel, and assume there's more going on than that. And we're not given the meaning of it, but we can speculate. We can speculate that with this blood, these people who are to serve in God's presence, they are being consecrated themselves. They are being set apart. And one says it might just be a, a way to say the whole person from head to toe is set apart for God. And another says it may be saying that specific parts can represent uh, certain actions. With my ears, I'll listen to God. My ears are marked with blood for God. With my hands, I'll move to serve as God wants me to serve. My feet that are marked with the blood, I will move as God wants me to move. This is being set apart for God's service, sanctified. The people themselves who serve in the tabernacle being made holy to serve God. But let me say to you, there was an understanding that these, these special priests, they were the special representatives, but, but the whole people were given teaching in the book of Exodus that they were to be a kingdom of priests. Do you remember this? Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." You see, this whole nation that God has called forth, delivered, and set apart for his service, they are to mediate his presence to the whole world. Sometimes people are bothered because God has chosen one particular people. Why would he do that? God chose one people, but he did that for the sake of the whole world. These people are set aside to be priests so that eventually the whole world can know God. We have a similar teaching in the New Testament. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's, that's the entire people of God, set apart as a holy priesthood to offer sacrifices. You are a chosen race. This is who you are now. Understand this. This is your identity. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We affirm, you've heard the term before, the priesthood of all believers. And that means something. And we say, oh man, that's such a great doctrine. So thankful for the people who recovered that doctrine and gave it to us. We, we believe that now every believer is a priest. We have the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has been poured out on all believers, not just a few. We have access to God. We don't have to go through any human being. And that's all good. Here's what I want to know is what difference is that making in your life? Or is it just a pretty teaching we like to say? Oh yeah, we're all priests. Maybe you think, well, that means we don't, we don't really need the preacher. Because we're all priests. 
Maybe you don't. But my question is, what are you doing with your life? If it's a reality that you are a priest of God. See, you are called to consecration. You are called to be set apart for service to God. That's what it means to say we're all priests. You are to be marked by blood to say, I will listen to God. My hands will move to serve God. My feet will move at his direction. This is the calling of Christians. Consecrate us now, Lord, to your service by the power of grace divine. Let our souls look up with a steadfast hope and our will be lost in thine. Trace was telling me last night about his uh, missionary experience in Mexico. Uh, beautiful things happening in and through Trace in that time. And what Trace was finding is that uh, he's not just a contractor, he's a missionary. Or maybe at a more fundamental level, he's a priest. Called in his particular gifting, called in his particular makeup to offer spiritual sacrifices to God and to bear fruit in the kingdom of God as a priest. I was at a conference uh, the last couple days, um, and uh, well, I came back Friday, but uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I was there, and uh, one of the, the guys who was involved in leadership of this, this conference focused, I guess you'd say, on, on Christian renewal, uh, seeking, seeking the Lord to be poured out in the church. He was involved with Asbury and what happened at Asbury and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that took place up there back in February. He was one of the people who was involved, I guess, in prayer ministry, something like that at Asbury. And he shared a story of how at one, one time, you know, great things were happening there. And at one point, a lady came down. This may not be exact. I'm not, may, you know, give me some grace here for the, the quote. But the, a lady came down the aisle and said, uh, she said, I am Hindu. She came down to, to meet him and said, I am Hindu, and I have met him. And I, I think he said something like, oh, oh you mean Jesus? And she, and she said, yes, and he is wonderful. And he said, oh, okay. He said, do you have anything, do you have anything you need to repent of? And she said, all of me. <laughs> and I want to say to you, that is what we're after. And sometimes we need to hear a voice who comes from the outside, who hasn't been raised in the church, who realizes what the gospel is and says, oh, I can get in on that? Take all of me? Every Christian is called to this kind of consecration because we believe in a priesthood of all believers. Well, let's look briefly at chapter 9. It involves more offerings for Aaron and the people. 
Just read these first few verses here. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. You got the sin offering, the burnt offering. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish, for a burnt offering. Sin offering, burnt offering again for the people. And an ox and a ram for peace offerings. So now you've got those three to sacrifice before the Lord, the peace offering with the sin offering, the burnt offering, and a grain offering. So you've got four of the five. The only one we don't have here is the guilt offering that Josh talked about last week. A grain offering mixed with oil for today. Now get this. For today the Lord will appear to you. Verse 6. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. This is the point of all these offerings. It's not so we can be people who have religious rituals. It's so we can be people who can see the Lord. It's so we can be people who are close to God. It's so God can manifest himself to us. Sometimes that uh, in, in Christian settings, we really, really want manifestation. And so we say, God, come show yourself. Do what we're asking you to do. We want to see power. We want to see fireworks. We want to see things happen. Hey, I am with you. I want that too. But guess what? There's something that comes before manifestation. It's consecration. And we don't get to show up and boss God around because it's the New Testament. Well, now we live in the New Testament, God. Do what I tell you to. God is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's still the holy God before whom we bow. And we are called to consecrate ourselves for him. And it's in light of that consecrated life that then we seek the manifestation. And the manifestation is important. We need God to manifest himself. We don't need to be running on empty, trying to work things up from within ourselves all the time. We need to see God move. But God doesn't move because we tell him to. God doesn't move because suddenly some people say, hey, we want to have a church service and we want it to go well. We want people to like it. We want people to come back. So God, do a miracle. That's never been the way God operates. God moves for people who are given over to him. God moves when he has captured people and people say, God, we are yours now. You can do whatever you want. We ask you to be here. But you're God and we're not. We're just yours. And then suddenly, we can't control it. But suddenly we see him. We're like, there he is. And our lives change. And may I say to you, you read on down this chapter, you see that you see that God comes and he, he, he lights on fire. He just descends from heaven and lights, lights the, the sacrifices on fire. But he didn't do that every time. And sometimes the, the, the big manifestations, they're given to us. 
and they're meant to encourage us. And we need to remind ourselves of those things, of what we have seen, while we anticipate what he'll do next. We don't get up and, and, and berate ourselves. Well, we haven't seen what we thought we were going to see. It hadn't happened like we thought it was going to happen. God hadn't done what we... No, he's just God. <laughs> Our job is to be consecrated before him. And then in light of his manifestation, to live out from that in obedience. It's interesting to me the, the progression of the song that I've, I've mentioned to you. Consecrate me now to your service, Lord. That's what... That's what uh, Fanny Crosby wrote this song. She's a blind, blind lady who wrote over 8,000 hymns and songs. And uh, she said, consecrate me, Lord. The next line, at least in the, in the version I have in my songbook in, in the office, the next line says, Oh, the pure delight of a single hour that before thy throne I spend. When I kneel in prayer and with thee, O oh God, I commune as friend with friend. See, that's, that's a manifestation, a smaller version of it, you know, not, not the, the big kind of hoopla that comes around it, but that, that's somebody who's, who's encountering God, who's saying, oh, the pure delight. I commune with God like he's my friend. I get to spend an hour with him. And the first line is consecrate me, set me apart. And what we see in chapter 10 is we have people who may not have been consecrated, and this is the, the story of Nadab and Abihu. My Church of Christ people may have just had some flashbacks, some, some nightmare flashbacks in here. This is one of those scary verses that's been used in our past. Uh, let me just, just tell you what happens. Nadab and Abihu, you can, you can look at the beginning of, of chapter 10. They offer strange fire, unauthorized fire before God. It doesn't tell us much more about what it was. They do this, though, and then the fire comes out and burns up Nadab and Abihu. And you can see how that can be scary to legalists who think you're supposed to get things right. Mess up, burned up. That's the rule. And uh, that's one of the texts that we misuse to say those kind of things. First of all, let me just say this. This is not in my notes, but I just want to stop here and say this. We read everything in our Bibles in light of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that. He has revealed the heart of God with clarity in a way no one or nothing ever has. You can never read a scripture that overturns the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're confused about anything in the Old Testament, if anything in the Old Testament leaves you scratching your head and say, Ooh, I don't know about that, turn and look full in his wonderful face. <laughs> and you'll be all right. But we, but we get back to, to this text and we think about we think about what's really happening here, and it, it leaves us questioning, wait a second, is it as simple as maybe we've sometimes thought? Because guess what? A lot of people disobeyed a lot of the time in the Old Testament. They didn't get burned up. In fact, the sacrificial system was given there to make provision for the sins of people who messed up. And, and, and in addition to that, we find scriptures in the Old Testament that, that teach us that God actually cares more about matters like justice and mercy than he does about right sacrifices. And yet people are being unjust, they're being unmerciful, and they're not getting burned up. So what is happening here? Well, we don't know for sure, okay? I'll just say that up front. But let me just su suggest to you that there may be 
more going on than we think. It may be they needed to learn some lessons really badly about dealing with the nuclear power of the divinity of God. And there are some reasons to think that Nadab and Abihu had actually tried to enter into the most holy place. Whatever they did, if you follow the text from chapter 7 through 10, there's this repeated phrase over and over. They did it just as the Lord commanded. They, they, they offered things just as the Lord commanded, just as the Lord commanded, just as the Lord commanded. You get to chapter 10, and it says, Nadab and Abihu didn't offer it as God commanded, something like that. The text is, is shifting intentionally, saying something went off here. Maybe impudently. You see, they, they had just watched God come down. They, they had prepared for him. They had consecrated themselves. They stayed seven days in the tabernacle. God had come down out of the sky and lit an altar on fire. There's an appropriate response to that. My dad told me a joke years ago about a parrot. And uh, this parrot had a dirty mouth. And he'd say all kinds of bad stuff. And the owner could not stop the parrot from saying these bad things. And finally, in exhaustion and desperation, he grabbed that parrot and said, You shut up. He opened up the freezer and he threw the parrot in the freezer and he shut the freezer door and left him in there. Came back in a little while. Didn't leave him long enough to really hurt him. Got him out. And the parrot was just super nice. And the parrot was so respectful. And he's like, yes, sir. Uh, I, I'm, I just do what you tell me now, whatever, whatever you want. And after a minute, the parrot said, may I ask what the chicken did? <laughs> he learned something <laughs> by what he witnessed. Right. Nate, I'm going to buy you should have learned some things about God. And there, especially as representatives for the people, people who were learning how to live in God's presence, who had to know about his power and might and goodness, who had to know that he is to be obeyed, life won't go right if the people don't know who this great God is. And if they looked at that and were like, no, I think we'll do what we want to do. And, and I'm not going to take the time to get, I was thinking about getting into this, but for time, I, I won't worry about it. Uh, but there are some reasons, like I said, to think they may have, if you look at the text closely, they may have tried to enter into the most holy place. If you follow the text through through chapter 16, look at chapter 16 and, and read how it begins. Uh, and if, that, if that's the case, you can imagine why there needed to be a statement made. And you can understand how even they would deserve it if they were dismissing this God who had made himself so present in such a powerful way. There are lessons that we have to learn. It doesn't negate the mercy of God. We find, when we look at Christ, we find the mercy of God is overflowing. That was the whole point of God being there, right? <laughs> he was there with them by mercy, but they had to learn how things were going to be if they were going to live with him. Well, if you, if you go down the text, verses 6 and 7, you find a little bit more about what it means. <clears throat> I'm going to close up here. What it means to live in consecration. Because you know what God tells Aaron? He says, don't mourn. Aaron's oldest two sons are, are killed. And God, God tells Aaron, 
You can't mourn. And it's, again, I don't know if the text makes it 100% clear to us. We're left maybe to have some sanctified imagination here, but you can't help but, but wonder maybe if what God is saying is, you're my priest. You're for me first. And you identify with me in my judgments. Even above your family. Guys, do you know that Jesus said, if you don't love him more than your family, you're not worthy of him? We have, to, we have to really think about what, what we are, what we're doing with our lives. And, and, and let me just remind us of the words that we, I started out quoting that, that uh, Crosby writes. This is by the power of grace divine. And if you sit here and you hear things like that, it'll feel like a great burden. You're like, how in the world, if you're not there, you know, how in the world do I get to where I love God and serve God like that? Well, it's by the power of grace divine. But we need to know what the target is. And we need to bring ourselves before the Lord and say, I want that consecration. I believe that you are worthy of that. Do you understand that? We can start there. You are more worthy than my children. You're more worthy than my spouse. And so I would like to be your priest in this world. Whatever that means for me. It's going to look very different for you than it does for me. But whatever that means, whatever God wants to do, I want to be your priest in the world. That's the calling of every Christian. Because there's a priesthood of all believers. We see all these rituals. And I'm going to bring this to a close here. And sometimes people complain, oh, the empty rituals. And that is a fair complaint much of the time. It's ritual without reality. But I'm afraid that many times in the church we've arrived at a place where we have neither ritual nor reality. <laughs> and guys, what we have to have to be the saints, that's what we are, we are saints, to be the saints that God has identified us as, we have to have a consecrated heart. Sees Christ for who he is and says, here I'll bow down. Here I'll bow down. Here's something I don't understand. I think I'm, I'm going to say something pastors aren't supposed to say, especially in sermons. It's, I don't know. What I don't understand is the holy presence of God, so powerful, so majestic, so untouchable. When, when that presence came to earth as a man, it wasn't like that. People walked right up to him. People who weren't supposed to get anywhere close to the most holy place. People with bleeding issues. People with skin diseases. They walked right up to that presence. They walked up to the altar in the most holy place in the form of a person. And he just loved them. I'm not sure how to make sense of that, honestly. Except for it's the two things we have learned. The psalm says, you, O Lord, I may misquote this, you, O Lord, are powerful, and you, O Lord, are kind. And maybe some lessons we have to learn before we learn other lessons. You know what I mean? If we had never grasped, if, those, if the people in that culture at that time had never grasped the great, mighty power of God to, ne- to learn the fear of the Lord, 
could we ever have really appreciated that kind of love? And we might have known what it's supposed to be loved by a deity, but could we know what it is to be loved by God? The God who dwells in unapproachable light, the God who is a consuming fire, that God who has been revealed to us is the God who comes in Christ. And we just say, "'Tis mercy all immense and free." That's the way the song says, "'Tis mercy all immense and free." For, oh my God, it has found out me. Jesus Christ has found me out. The presence of God has come close to me. The presence of God has come close to you. And now we're going to forego a song right now. Brother Terry, come on up if you would. And we're going to enter into this time at the table. The book of Hebrews makes it clear to us that the way for us into that holy presence has been cleared out. The obstacles have been taken away, and we can come down. There's nothing more sacred that we do than this right here. Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. Come and take it. This morning, it's a little prayer book I use sometimes and has a lot of prayers from different saints in the past. And my eyes just fell on this prayer uh, from Anselm, St. Anselm. And I just want to read it to you because it's a prayer of consecration. Take it, receive what you can from it. Don't get hung up if you don't understand something. And then, and then I'll offer thanks and invite you to come. Lord, because you have made me, I owe you the whole of my love. Because you have redeemed me, I owe you the whole of myself. Because you have promised so much, I owe you my whole being. Moreover, I owe you as much more love than myself as you are greater than I, for whom you gave yourself and to whom you promised yourself. I pray you, Lord, make me taste by love what I taste by knowledge. Let me know by love what I know by understanding. I owe you more than my whole self. But I have no more. And by myself, I cannot render the whole of it to you. Draw me to you, Lord, in the fullness of your love. I am wholly yours by creation. Make me all yours, too, in love. I want to invite you to come to this table today, seeking to be made all gods, not just in your head, but in love. Let me give thanks for the love.